The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Um, right now, we're actually blessed to hear a devotional from a devotional video from Natalie Hagman, and following that, uh, Natalie and her husband Norm are going to be reading today's scripture. Hello, friends. I've been asked to share a portion of my testimony as it relates to today's scripture reading and my worship through painting. I received the Lord when I was seven years old at a Barry Moore crusade. I was later baptized at the age of 12. Since I was 14 years old, I've had health problems. I graduated as a registered nurse with a promising career in the operating room only to realize that it would be me requiring the services of those in the operating room. Um, I've had many surgeries and difficult medical procedures. My condition has hampered my ability to be the wife, mother, and grandmother that I had desired to be. Not only was my career taken away, but so too was my health and the capacity to care for those I loved. So we thought we'd get a second opinion on my lupus, so we traveled to the Mayo Clinic in search of medical hope, only to be told to accept my condition as it was. A young married couple with two small children sitting in the bank of the Mayo Clinic, waiting for our bill with the weight of disappointment on our shoulders. <clears throat> the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, I was perplexed by the amount of struggles and difficulties in my life. I always trusted God and his divine will for my life. I've learned after years of dealing with pain that suffering if we yield it to God, it makes us real. It makes us real with ourselves and real with the Lord. Because when I yielded myself to God and trusted him to take care of my situation, I could then feel God's gentle hand take firm possession of this affliction and use it to work a transformation within me. Was it easier without cost? Not one bit. God asked me the tough questions. Do you believe me that I will never leave you or forsake you even in this and that I'm your ever present help in times of trouble? I'm not going to abandon the work of my hands. Do you believe it? Do you trust that my grace is sufficient? And in the dark in bed crying out, Lord, what am I going to do? And who can I turn to but you, God? He became my shelter, like I was in his shadow, the shadow of the Almighty, and I felt blessed. Despite my pain, I do enjoy painting when I have the strength. These days are becoming less as my condition deteriorates, but by no means robs me of the joy that I find, find in painting. Like singing is a form of worship, so too are the works of those who express themselves creatively through, through art. So how can Romans 8, 18 be translated into a form of art? I paint from my reflections on the Lord. This here um, is a risen Savior who brings freedom from the suffering body and restores it to a new glorified body, free of pain and inability. In this painting, I wanted to display the glory of God, emerging from the dark tomb to a bright, shining Savior of hope, 
Jesus rose from the dead. A great light raised from the tomb after he had suffered and now had risen from the dead, making it possible for us to have forgiveness of sins and eternal life with him and an abundant life here and now. Not only had he conquered death, but gave hope to the hopeless. That's my king. In the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, most of us might know it, we are told to look full in his wonderful face and all the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His painting reflects the light of Jesus' glory and grace, the glory that will be revealed in us. G.D. Watson wrote, when the suffering soul reaches a calm, sweet carelessness, when it can inwardly smile at its own suffering and does not even ask God to deliver it from the affliction, then suffering has wrought its blessed ministry. Then patience does its perfect work. Then the crucifixion begins to weave itself into a crown. When we give our suffering over to God and sink ourselves into his will, he will make every pain work its perfect purpose in our lives. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. I hope this is helpful to you today. I pray that these words will give some direction and purpose in your suffering. Our suffering comes in all shapes and sizes. Whatever yours is, I want to encourage you to look to God for comfort. He is always there. Blessings to everyone. Good morning. I'm Norm Hagman. I'm Natalie Hagman. And this morning we'll be reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 30, and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 to 18, from the New American Standard Version. Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory for the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons to the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who does one also hope for what he sees. But if we have hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And in the same way the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, 
for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings to deep for words, and he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among the brethren, and whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Second Corinthians 16, chapter 4, verse 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight in glory, of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Amen. I am so grateful for the testimony and the painting of Natalie Hagman uh, shared this morning and um, also for her and Norm were able to read the scriptures to us today as we look at this word of God. So appropriate that Natalie uh, is, is the one that did this because she has experienced more of the two parts of what Paul the apostle is teaching about. She has experienced the groaning of this body in a special way and she has also experienced the first fruits of the Spirit in that comfort and counsel through that groaning, as Paul talks about in this scripture. And of course, not only, uh, not only Natalie, but Paul the Apostle also has experienced a lot of groaning. And when he writes passages like in Romans 8 or in other passages, there are, he's not speaking theoretically or theologically. He is speaking out of the groaning of his own life. And uh, years before uh, he had even written uh, Romans, he had written 2 Corinthians. And uh, here's what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our bodies. A little later on in chapter 6, he says, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, treated as impostors, yet are true, unknown, yet well-known, dying, yet behold, we live as punished, yet not killed, sorrowful, but not still rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Paul's life being described. Later on in chapter 11, he says, he catalogs his sufferings. He says, 
I've faced imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak, he says. And yet with all of this catalog, all of this list of sufferings and groanings in his body, the Apostle Paul could come still to verse 18 of Romans 8 and say, I consider, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. (laughs) It's incredible. We cannot begin to understand the sufferings of the Apostle Paul. And yet, his word of God was made incarnate through Romans, just as Natalie Hagman is incarnating the word of God through her sufferings. And uh, as we look at this scripture, I want you to think about verse 18 that you have on the screen and verse 28, that we know that in all things God works for the good. God things work, works together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. I want you to look at those as bookends. And we're going to be looking at two of those key truths, but we're going to look at what's between them. Two very important truths. The one is that the glory awaiting us is beyond our comprehension. It will be an eternal, soul-satisfying, God-enjoying good that you and I as believers in Christ will enjoy. And all of our present sufferings will pale in comparison to that glory. And then the second truth, which is in verse 28, which is this idea that even now, even now, God is the kind of God that works all things together for good. That means that he's doing some kind of a mysterious tapestry through all the stuff of our lives. The things that we would interpret as good and the things that we would interpret as bad, God puts them all together and he weaves something out of it and he says it's good. He only does good things. No good thing does God withhold from those who follow him. He weaves it together for his purposes. What are his purposes? Well, We'll look at that next time as we go from verse 28 onward into verse 31, 32, 33. But for today, I want to look at what's between verse 18 and verse 28. And when we look at what's going on between verse 18 and 28, there's a whole lot of groaning going on. In fact, Paul uses the word three times groaning. He uses it to describe that all of creation is groaning. He says that we ourselves are groaning, and he says that the Holy Spirit also is groaning. And um, if you're young this morning, and you're listening to this message, and you're young, and you have not been sick much, you've not suffered much, you might not find as much relevance in this passage. (laughs) But let me tell you, one day will come when you understand it more fully, because you will face more groaning. And so let's take a look at what this scripture is all about, starting with how creation groans. The word, actually, for groaning, 
Stenazo means to sigh, to moan, to groan or murmur even. It's from a word stenos, which means to be compressed or restricted. Picture in your mind a narrow gate that you have to squeeze through. You're being constricted. The point is in this word that not many options are open to you. Things have been taken away. There are not many choices in life. Something has been inflicted upon you. You have been thrust into a circumstance you can't do much about. We groan when we, re- when we experience that. All of us have been groaning for almost a year and a half with the COVID-19 restrictions. We've been groaning because we've been thrust into a restricted kind of life. And the response, the human response, is groan. We groan. But, but in this scripture, groaning, as Paul is using it, has a purpose. There's a purpose to our groaning. It looks forward to something. And that's why Paul uses the analogy of a, a woman who's in labor pains groans because she's looking forward to a baby that is going to be born. And every one of you mothers who have had children, you, you definitely look back and say, I was worth it all. All that groaning, that is the word that is used for a woman in labor pains, groaning. But it's worth it all. And so the scriptures the Paul uses, first of all, he uses it of all creation, verse 22. <clears throat> now I'll ask you, why is creation groaning? Why are dogs and cats and grass and trees and lakes and rivers groaning? Why? Well, in verse 20 it says why. It says in verse 20 that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now let's unpack this. There's a lot here, isn't there? Paul is taking us back in time to the very creation story when Adam and Eve After all this goodness was created, Adam and Eve sinned. And in this scripture, we read in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 17, Cursed is the ground. Why? Because of you, God says to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. From this verse we see that the curse that was pronounced over Adam and Eve because of their disobedience to God. Our representative heads, because of the curse that was pronounced on them, all of creation has been cursed along with them and experienced the curse. Everything that God has created has been subjected, Paul says, to futility. The word has to do with vanity, emptiness, not by its own fault, not by its own fault. Grass and goats, plants and plankton, lakes and larvae, dogs and doves, none of them can be blamed for the state that we are in. They are not moral creatures, but we are. They are suffering and they are groaning because of their, not our sin, not theirs. And so all creatures groan in the pains of childbirth, waiting for that day, the outcome of it all, when the sons of God will be revealed. 
Now, we must not see this scripture as an environmental text. This is not meant to be a comment on the pollution of our air, land, and water. Now, indeed, hear me out. Indeed, humanity is adding to the bondage to corruption of verse 21. There is no question that we are mismanaging as stewards the good creation that God has made us over. What God has left us on earth, we're not doing the greatest job of managing and stewarding. But even if we were to up our game environmentally, all of creation would still be under the degenerating curse of sin. And you see, the groaning of the environment, the groaning of creation did not start with greenhouse gases and landfill sites. The groaning of creation started with our representative heads disobeying God and all of creation coming under that curse of sin. And so creation groans. And so creation is waiting for the final day when all of us who are children of God will be revealed. All, all creation will see who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who are belonging to Christ. And then there will be a set freeness, a liberating from corruption and this glorious freedom that is reserved for us as God's people by grace, all of creation also will enter into. We look forward to a new heaven and a new earth. That's what the scriptures teach. And God will restore everything to its original beauty, harmony, and purpose, and God will remove the curse of sin. Isaiah, way back, prophesied about this. In chapter 11, verse 6, he says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and a little child shall lead them. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you imagine what a time when little infants will play with venomous snakes, when bears and lambs will lie down together, when no more thistles will inflict the gardens. But in the meantime, what do we do? What does creation do? Creation groans. Next, Paul says, we also groan. Verse 23 And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now last week as we were looking at the previous section in verses 12 to 17, we saw that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And the way he does that bearing witness is that he leads us if we will follow him. And we said last week that he leads us in three ways. First of all, he leads us to put to death sin, to mortify the flesh. Secondly, we said that he leads us, Paul teaches that he leads us not into the fear of God in the sense that we run away from him, but we actually run toward him and we cry, Abba, Father. That's the testimony of the Spirit because you have the spirit of adoption within you. And then thirdly, we, we saw that Paul teaches that, we, that the Spirit of God leads us to willingly, voluntarily share in the sufferings of Christ. Now, when we looked at these, 
The point today that we go on to say is that part of our groaning is that this is what we were destined for by the Spirit of God within us, and yet we have a hard time putting sin to death, right? We have a hard time running to God and crying out, Abba, Father, when we sometimes don't want to run in shame and and away from him. We have a hard time willingly sharing in the sufferings of Christ when we'd rather pursue our own comforts, our own gratifications, our own pleasures, and follow the crowd. And so we have within us this conflicting witness, the spirit bearing witness. We are children of God. We're groaning, though, right now because we know we're called to something more, something higher, something greater of a participation in the divine life. One author said it this way, H.A. Ironside, he said, once we groaned in bondage to sin, now we groan in grace. This very groaning, though, is in itself a testimony to the changed conditions brought about by our union with Christ. Amen. John Stott says it this way. He says, it is our unredeemed bodies which cause us to groan. Why is that? For one thing, these bodies are weak, fragile, mortal, subject to fatigue, sickness, pain, and death. What makes us groan inwardly is our physical frailty on the one hand and our sinfulness on the other. And so we long ardently for the future glory when we shall be delivered from both of these burdens. And this is the Christian's hope, dear friends. This is why... God has given us his spirit that deposited the first fruits. It is that the redemption of our bodies is coming. Redemption is not full and complete yet. The redemption of our bodies, freedom from the very presence of sin will come. And though we do not see it yet, as verse 25 says, we wait for it patiently. Patiently, that word, upomone, stand under it until God lifts it. And the word wait is a very interesting word as well. The idea in the word wait for it patiently is that you're looking completely away from this world to the world that is to come and the hope that you have in God. Now, it's a lot easier to long for that day of redemption when you're suffering. People who are aged, people who are infirm and suffering, people who have dealt with a lot of pain, They long for that day more. I would say that the danger for many of us is that we get too comfortable in this life, that we experience such pleasure in this world that we figure this is what it's all about, that we get lulled into a spiritual stupor and we forget that we were created for something more. Not only in the world to come, we were created for something more in this life to experience the intimacy with Jesus. So the Bible calls us to set our hearts and minds on things above where Christ is seated and where we're seated with him. You see, in other words, it's okay to be heavenly minded. (laughs) That's what Paul is teaching us. Just don't become, don't let it be said of you that you're no earthly good because that, this is a false dichotomy. Whoever started the idea that he's so heavenly minded he's of no earthly good, that's a false dichotomy. Those who are truly the most heavenly minded have nothing to lose on this earth, nothing to argue for on this earth, and they can spend their lives in serving the kingdom of God in this body, on this earth, regardless of the pain we face. 
Those who are most heavenly minded are most earthly good, according to the teaching of God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, and this is Paul, this is the Apostle Paul, the sufferer. He says, so therefore we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. Did you read the catalog of sufferings he endured? He's calling it a light and momentary affliction. I'd call a light and momentary affliction a headache one evening. He says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen, unseen, they're eternal. This leads us, friends, to our third point, and that is that all creation groans, we ourselves groan, but also the Holy Spirit groans. The Holy Spirit groans. Let's take a look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us, Paul writes, in our weakness, for we do not know what or how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I think in this verse and in the next verse 27, These are probably some of the most important verses for us as believers to understand the mechanics of prayer. How does prayer work, in other words? And um, do you remember the scripture in John 14, 18, where Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus, in John 14 to 16, was talking all about the Holy Spirit. It was just, just the last evening before he was about to be crucified and then have that time of of resurrection and the appearances before the ascension. This was the last teaching. He, He teaches all about the Holy Spirit. And when he talks about not leaving us as orphans but coming to us, he's talking about coming in the presence and person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus. And Jesus called the counselor, the the Holy Spirit, the, the parakletos, the counselor, the comfort, the one who comes alongside of you. Four times he calls the Holy Spirit, that in, in John 14 to 16. And he says in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor and that counselor, he'll be with you forever. Now the word another there is not another of a different kind, like another fruit compared to an orange is an apple. No, another of the same kind is what Jesus says. In other words, Jesus is teaching in John 14 that I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to you in my spirit. He's going to be the paracletos. He's going to come alongside of you. And he's going to be another counselor just like I have been as I've walked with you for these three and a half years. We can have confidence that the spirit who dwells within us is the spirit of Jesus, just like Jesus. Jesus was basically saying to his apostles, how is it that when my church grows beyond the thousands and millions, how is it that I am going to be with my people, in my people, guiding my people? I'm going to do it by my spirit. I'm going to not leave you as orphans. 
Now going back to Romans 8.26, I want you to see three things that Paul is teaching about the Holy Spirit. He says, first of all, in verse 26, that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know how to pray. Secondly, he says in verse 26 that he intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And then thirdly, in verse 27, he says that he prays for us, he searches our hearts, and then he prays for us in accordance with the will of God so that our prayer gets past the ceiling. Now, why does the Holy Spirit do all this for us? Well, Paul says it very clearly. The reason he does it is because we don't know how to pray. (laughs) Can Can you confess that? Can you admit that to God? It's a good place to begin. God, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray on this matter. Good place to begin. So just to step aside for a moment, I want you to know that we're gonna take the entire summer coming up, and for 10 weeks, we're gonna talk about prayer. We're gonna take 10 different characters from the Bible, and we're gonna see what Moses, Aaron, Hannah, David, Hezekiah, Daniel, Jonah, Mary, Jesus, and Paul. We wanna we want see how they prayed and what they can teach us about prayer. So I'm really looking forward to this summer. We're gonna be looking at what prayer is as we take a break from Romans and then get back into it in the fall. One of my best, two, there's two of my favorite definitions of prayer that I've ever read, and this is one of them. It's by John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He said that prayer is a sincere sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to the word of God for the good of the church with submission in faith (laughs) to the will of God. (laughs) You got that? (laughs) We could take all summer to unpack that definition of prayer. But you know what I think? I think John Bunyan was reading Romans 8 when he described that definition. If you want to simplify it a little bit more, I like what my, a fellow I knew way back, Mark Calhoun from Prayer Life Ministries, he said this. He said, real prayer is the Holy Spirit talking to the Father through Jesus the Son, and you are just the prayer room. <laughs> I like that definition even better. And when I, when I first saw that definition, I thought about the scripture in Mark eleven seventeen, where Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And if you link that with what God says about us, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, then it makes complete sense that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are houses of prayer. Every time we get together, we're house of prayer. And all the time when we're out all doing our different things all over the, pl- the map, we are little houses of prayer just going all over the place. And the, the essence of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is within us. And he's helping us to pray because we don't know how to pray. Now, <clears throat> you see once again that the Spirit of God is helping us to do the Christian life because we don't know how to do it. Here here he's saying that he does prayer for us and with us too. We cannot move the barriers. We We just look to God and he'll help us remove the barriers. I want us to look at describing what Paul is talking about in verse 26. This is one of the most, I think one of the most exciting parts to this entire thing. 
The word for help in verse 26 is actually a really big, long word, sun antilambanatai. And that word is actually three words in one. The word sun means together with, anti means opposite of or across from, lambanatai or lambano means to grab hold of something in order to move it or lift it. So when you put these words together, sunanti lambanatai, to help, the Spirit helps us, is it saying that together with the Spirit of God, opposite me, he is helping me move the barrier that is keeping us from the will of God. Remove whatever mountain is in the way. Removing or moving things beyond where they are into the will of God and the purposes of God. That's one of the reasons why verse 28 follows verse 26 and 27 because after verse 26 and 27 where the Holy Spirit is doing all that he can do to help you with your your temple of prayer, your house of prayer, he's saying, guess what? God works all things together for good. That's why he does it, how he does it. And so there's this incredible picture of the Holy Spirit helping us in prayer. And uh, he helps us, he intercedes for us, he counsels us, and he works it out for the good of our own selves. I, I think it's important that we pause to note this, that we cannot do prayer without the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit needs a house of prayer to dwell in. And so there's this, there's this working together, this synergy. Matthew Henry says, whenever God wants to do something greater, he gets his people praying first. And the only other time, this is I find interesting, the only other time that this word is used, <clears throat> this big, long, three words in one, sunanti lambanatai, the only other time this word is used is, guess what? When Martha and Mary are with Jesus. And in, <clears throat> in uh, the scripture, Luke 10, 40, Martha says to Jesus, tell my sister to help me. <laughs> Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Tell her to get on the other side of the kitchen and get at it and work together with me and lift this thing and serve all these people. Tell her to help me. Now in this situation, guess what Jesus said? <laughs> Jesus said, you know what, Martha? In fact, he said it this way, I think. He said, ah, Martha, Martha. <laughs> you are worried and upset about so many things, but Mary has chosen the better and it will not be taken from her. What did Mary choose? What was the better? Prayer. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus. She was being a house of prayer. Martha was saying to Jesus, Lord, this is a big job. Would you tell my sister to get in here and pull her weight? I can't do it myself we can go to the Holy Spirit and we can say, God, God, this is a big job. I can't carry this burden. Guess what? The Holy Spirit's already in the temple. 
And he says, let's do it. Come to me in prayer. Let's do it. He's up for it. So how do you put together the mechanics of prayer? Let me just describe it. The mechanics of prayer are this. The Holy Spirit of God is resident helper within the life of every Christian, every believer. He is waiting there for you to come into the house of prayer and engage with him. As he is there as your helper, he is interpreting the depths of your groaning, the depths of your heart, the prayer need you have. He takes the burden from your prayer and he puts it in a format that is discernible, conforming to the will of God, and he lifts it up and he sends it up to heaven. The prayer goes up to heaven in accordance with the will of God. Your groaning, his groaning, goes up to God, and guess where it lands? It lands at the other one, verse 34 of chapter 8, the other one who's interceding for us, Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father, and Jesus the Son leans over to God the Father, so to speak, and he says, Father, Father, there's Terry down there. He's just... He's just been praying. Here's the need. And the Father God sends the response back to earth. And and we hear the response because the Holy Spirit translates in reverse. He interprets in reverse and he helps us understand. That's the mechanics of prayer, I believe. Isn't that beautiful? How God has provided for us in every way. My house should be called a house of prayer. Archbishop Trench once said, we must never conceive of prayer as overcoming God's reluctance, but instead laying hold of his highest willingness. And I believe that's the way to think about prayer. Let's pray together and let's have the worship team come. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this privilege of prayer that we just walk in and out of regularly. I thank you, God, that you know our need before we ask it. And Lord, I I don't know all the needs of those that are watching in today or are part of this service. You do, though. Holy Spirit of God, you do. Lord, you know all the groaning that's going on in our hearts and outwardly and inwardly. Father, thank you that, that you have so adequately, so overabundantly taken care of our need by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, every hour may we cry out to you, Abba, Father, and may we find that helper with us, ready to assist us in uttering the prayer that we need to utter. Thank you, God. Thank you for your son, Jesus, Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for your Holy Spirit.